that what is your biases? Are your biases towards civilians, towards human rights, towards the integrity, like the need for people to live in dignity and and to, you know, for justice to be served? That's my biases. Welcome to a new episode of Declarations. Today we're going to be talking about reporting on human rights in Yemen. In 2011, there were civilian uprisings in Yemen alongside other Middle Eastern countries during the Arab Spring. In September 2014, the Houthi rebel group in alliance with former President Saleh ousted President Hadi and started a full-blown war. In 2015, Saudi Arabia and the UAE with a coalition of Arab countries started a military campaign to reinstate President Hadi. Governments of Western countries continue to supply arms to the Saudi coalition that has been conducting relentless airstrikes in Yemen, affecting large swaths of civilian infrastructure and the population. Six years later, there seems to be no end in sight to the war in Yemen. According to the Yemen Data Project, since March 2015, there have been 18,569 civilian casualties and 22,701 airstrikes. Thousands died in 2017 due to an outbreak of cholera and a breakdown of the healthcare system, which has yet to recover. A starving population is denied access to aid due to restrictions imposed by the Houthis. Women, political dissidents, and journalists are victims of arbitrary punishments. How does one report on such a conflict where so many different parties are complicit in the violation of human rights? What standards do you hold different parties to, and to what extent is it even possible to hold parties accountable? From the University of Cambridge and the Center of Governance and Human Rights, my name is Muna Gassim and I am your host. This is Declarations. I also have with me in the studio today, Akshita, who will also help lead the discussion. And as our special guest today, we have Afra Nasser. From humble beginnings in her home country in Yemen, in Al-Raqqa's neighborhood in Yemen's capital Sana'a, to an early career in journalism and the role of a blogger in Yemen's 2011 uprising, former Yemeni journalist, political writer, and human rights defender Afra Nasser has been advocating for women's empowerment and human rights in Yemen for over a decade. Nasser has written for and made appearances on numerous news outlets, including Al Jazeera, The Monitor, Atlantic Council, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and others. She's the recipient of the Swedish Peace and Arbitration Society Organization's 2017 Eld Ekblad's Peace Prize, the Penstots Prize in 2016, the Swedish Publicist Club's 2014 Dawit Isak Prize, and the Committee to Protect Journalists International Press Freedom Award in 2017. In 2013, Nasser was named by BBC as one of the 100 women who changed the world and has been featured three times as one of the 100 most influential Arabs by Arabian Business Magazine. Her blog, created during Yemen's 2011 uprisings, has won her the recognition of CNN and Al Monitor as one of the most influential blogs in the Middle East for her coverage of human rights. Afra Nasser today works as the Yemen researcher at Human Rights Watch, investigating humanitarian law violations and human rights abuses in Yemen. Afra, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolute honor to have you with us. Thank you for having me and for this opportunity. Thank you so much for being here, Afra. Um, so let's just jump straight into it. Um, you've written so, so much about human rights. You've researched about it. You've given talks and interviews about it. 
Um, but I think one of the main questions I have when it comes to reporting on human rights is how do you as a journalist or a researcher maintain objectivity or is there even such a thing as objectivity when it comes to the field of human rights? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, I let me let me tell you like a, a little story. Uh, when I I was applying for Human Rights Watch uh, in the job interview, I was like really confident that they will not take me, and I even told them, "I'm really confident you will not take me." And they and the yeah. the, the panelists they were asking me why. And I was like, because I'm from Yemen and, and I assume that uh, you don't see me objective. And very often we find uh, people talking about Yemen or Yemen expert to be non-Yemeni. So we can guarantee there is you know, a certain element of objectivity. And, and, and I was very clear about that. And of course, I was surprised when they, they took me eventually when Human Rights Watch took me eventually. And the, the, like, I think the question is that, what is your biases? Are your biases towards civilians, towards human rights, towards the integrity uh, and, and, and like the need for people to live in dignity and, and to, you know, for justice to be served? That's my biases. That's, and I, I, I think there, there, it's so hard to be away or not to be, you know, leaning towards something, toward one value over the other. Um, objectivity doesn't mean that you're not truthful. Um, I, I think it's so important to be true to your community, to your cause, to, to be true to your belief in human rights, uh, in, in my uh, case. And, and if that was, you know, for this party uh, or the, uh, like, because usually when, when you try to analyze Yemen, it's like a football match. Like, are you with the Saudi-led coalition camp or the, the Houthi rebel camp? Like, no, this is not, this is not a football match where we, we cheer for the side over the other. It's really about my family, my friends, family of my friends like and and I believe that everyone should live in in peace and in you know with the with the respect of their rights anywhere in Yemen south north west east it doesn't matter so I I just find the objectivity um discussion to be really uh problematic because because I I still find if we take the foreign Yemen experts, I still find them to have their own biases, even though they're regarded as, you know, objective. And, and just, just before going uh, with you live, I, I was tweeting um, that I find, quote unquote, Yemen watchers term to be funny uh, because it's as if Yemen is a Netflix or, or something. And usually the foreign Yemen experts, they tend to, you know, describe Yemen as if it's like a big scene or like just for them to emphasize their objectivity. And I think that strips away the humanity of people in Yemen um, who are 
my friends, my my family, and uh, and it's it's just so difficult to really um, show the international community that this kind of objectivity actually strips away the humanity of the the group that you're talking to, talking about actually. So we've had this discussion on our podcast as well because. We obviously are sitting in a university and we talk about all these like big abstract human rights principles. And one of the main things we kind of wanted to do was get into the real lived experiences of people on the ground. And so speaking about, you know, human rights reporting, do you think it's important for the people reporting about human rights issues to have a stake in the matter? Or is it better to sort of, you know, be a human rights reporter and have no sort of emotional connection to what you're reporting on? I think you need a mix of all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, academically, it's so important to be, you know, to have your academic impartiality and and to be very careful about the language and references that you're 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 uh, working on, you're using. So even in academia, for example, it's so it's so evident that um, male academics. Uh, quote only male other male academics and there is clear this in, uh, like, like not inclusion of women uh, in these uh, publications that's one element to tell you like it's so hard to not be like you can still be academic and and do all the right things but you still have your biases and mm-hmm. and, and and I think it's so important to mix all of that to mi- like um, when I tell you about, you know, the, the foreign Yemen expert and, 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 and I'm not trying to belittle them at all. What I'm saying is that we need to include everyone. We need to include the academics, the researchers, the human rights advocates, the witnesses, like, like all of them should be at, at the same table. Uh, bringing you, um, you know, a, a description or or a briefing about what's happening in Yemen. And this is the case that we're talking about here, but it could, that could happen to people in Syria, people in, like talking about people in Syria or Lebanon, et cetera. Like it's really about having all these perspectives um, included um, because excluding um, um, local voices uh, really harm what you're trying to do. Uh, so I think it's so important to mix all these elements. That's really important because when you talk about a diversity of perspectives um, and when you're trying to raise awareness about a single issue, you can't do it only through facts or only through descriptions. You do need that kind of balance from both. So I guess inclusion needs to start from the very basics. And talking about that, um, I you've written a few articles, some really nice articles about how women in journalism maybe um, with your experience in Yemen, but also generally, uh, considered maybe too emotional to uh, report on politics and human rights. Um, so what has your experience been with that? And why is, just, why is that just so terrible? In my experience in, in working as a young journalist in Sana'a in Yemen, uh, I always uh, felt I was one of a few women journalists. Uh, in the room, so um, like the sexism is <laughs> like it's so visible in uh, in in Sana'a, 
or I would say in Yemen uh, as a whole. Um, and for a woman to be visible, that by itself was like criminalized. And, and, but it's thanks to my mother, actually, who told me that you, your gender should mean nothing. It's, it's really about you and your personality and your hard work that determines what you want to be in the society. So from that, that belief, I was working in, in, a, in a field that was highly dominated by males. And, and the, like, even if you, are, if you are visible, but your voice very often doesn't matter, your opinion uh, doesn't matter. And that was a huge struggle. So I still remember one, one time uh, during the International uh, Women's Day, the chief editor at the newspaper that I was working at in, uh, in Sana'a, Yemen Observer newspaper, uh, he wanted to celebrate women's, I don't know, political participation. Or, and he, he suggested that I, I should be a chief editor for one day. And I said, that, that's fantastic. I'm getting the support that I want. And then because it's highly, you know, dominated by men, um, my colleagues did not show up that day. It wasn't like as a strike or like, you know, objection that why, why Afrah was going to be a, a chief editor. But that showed you the lack of interest and the belittling the value or the opinion or the work of, a woman. Um, this is the first time I, I, I talk about this, actually. Um, but uh, it, it, so, so in one hand, you had a man that supported a young uh, journalist, but on the other hand, like a collective of men, uh, they didn't show enthusiasm or the same interest if it was a male chief editor um, uh, when it was a female and that that really uh, sent a, a strong message to me that your opinion don't value and your work isn't valued and until today when you mentioned all the prices that I, I got I still get like overwhelmed that um, because I like very often I live with that trauma that my opinions don't matter Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 every time I was getting the award, I was like, "Really? Are are they sure? Like, is is my work this important?" But I always knew I was so passionate about writing. Like, I could physically get sick if I don't write, if I don't express the things that I was seeing, or just doing proper journalism. Um, it's not about being objective. It's it's re- it's really about being truthful to myself and my passion so till today i still and i get like emotional uh here because um it's really really challenging to be a female i think um like even internationally it's not so even the the like how the this career uh, this this field is uh male dominated it's international and it's global and women are expected very often to write about soft topics like cooking um, you know, makeup, uh, like even family issues, but not hard topics, not politics. And uh, it's just 
so important for me today that I'm speaking also with you know, two women panelists here. Um, so I hope things are changing, really crossing my finger. That's really, that's a really powerful story and thank you for sharing. Um, and I, it, it honestly, it, it's, it still saddens me because you obviously see a lot of this today and not just in journalism and politics and law as well, where it's an overly male dominated field and women are definitely not taken as seriously. But thinking about how that can change, what advice would you give to women? Um, you know, you mentioned imposter syndrome, not believing your opinions are good enough. What advice could you give to our listeners if they are, you know, aspiring journalists, female journalists, and they want to sort of become a human rights reporter or get into that field? What advice would you give them? I think it's so important to have your role models, like really up front in your eyes. So, so even talking to you now, I have a picture of uh, like one of the first uh, female journalists uh, in Yemen, Dr. Raufa Hassan, she, she passed away ten, 10 years ago, but I still have her as, she's always been my role model. Um, and, um, and I think it's so uh, unfair that such women pioneers in different uh, you know, walks of life don't get, get the same uh, media attention. But if you dig really, you will, you will find your role model. So even if your interest is in politics, in sports, even in cooking, like it doesn't matter. There are like women pioneers that you really have to, because, because you, you see like when we are just walking on the street, we're bombarded by, you know, like some advertisement, or if, you, if you can call it. And, and very often it's about male faces and male role models like this minister that football player, but we don't see as much uh, of female faces. And I think this is so important that you be aware of that and try to challenge it with like reminding yourself, reading about them. And that, that will just like put some confidence in you that if, if they can make it, I can make it. And, 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 and very often these pioneer, female pioneers They've already talked about the challenges that they faced. And it's getting better for women, but it's not ideal. But like when you try to compare your challenges with them, you go like, no, like it's it's it was more difficult for her. So it should be easier for her. and I don't have any more excuses if she could do it in that difficult. You, you know, you start like unconsciously um start to uh challenge the you know, the limitations that you think of. Um, so yeah, role models, I think it's it's the key, having a female role models. And then the rest is, you know, just having the skills and the right education, determination, of course. But the role models is like a magical secret, I think. Your work is really inspirational. And um, I think a lot of your influence is like shines through your blog and your Twitter and the kind of awareness you create. So do you think technology is helping women journalists like find new new places where their voices can be heard and where they can get that kind of platform? I think I think we like what happened with the Me Too movement, it's a clear, you know, uh, example of how women can occupy 
whatever space is possible and try to make you know their demands and and expose the 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 violations they face uh so i i like and, and there are a lot of studies how the Me Too movement, just tweeting, uh, really helped w- women with with trauma, um, trying mm-hmm. to you know diffuse some of the tension that they had, or or like using it as a journal where they they can write about it. But but at the same time, I don't want to romanticize the role of social media because there are so many sexism and trolling and and sexual harassment sexual like digital violence if we can say uh because uh you know when when i talk with a female um a male colleague um about the we call it the the hate poetry that we get from twitter hate poetry that's a that's a good term (laughs) yeah like the hate poetry because the way, like the 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 kind of attack that I I would get is different uh, to what my male colleague would would get. So there are gender based, you know, different online trolling, and 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 I think there needs to be more regulations uh, by governments to combat that. Um, like as we speak now, they're discussing uh, how Facebook. Uh, uh, had a good role and 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 uh, had a good decision in in banning uh, Donald Trump or not, and I think this is very very important to have these discussions and to hold presidents accountable to their online behavior and also to have all males uh, accountable to their online behavior against uh, females and vice versa. Like like violence should not be tolerated in any space. So, like, you know, the internet is like, uh, and like it's it's just a tool, and it has the the, the disadvantages and advantages of it. Um, but I think it's um, it's so important women occupy as many spaces as possible. Mm. One recurring theme that we've seen throughout this season is the use of social media for you know political gain the use of technology, opening up this space for every single person to essentially be a citizen journalist, this increase in participatory media. What do you feel has been the advantage? You've already spoken about the disadvantage of social media, but what do you think this has, what role do you think this has played for journalism as a whole? So opening up this space for technology, social media, for anyone essentially to go out there on the street and record a protest. What role do you think this has played and what, fears do you have about that as well yeah so basically citizen journalism revolutionized uh, journalism as a whole uh, so if you read some of the um like articles by like some of the oldest journalists they they tell you how they used to fax mm-hmm. a story mm-hmm. and how they didn't know when they're in one neighborhood they didn't know what was happening in the other neighbor a neighborhood and of course for us this is not like what you're talking about like of course I would uh, like I would be sitting like literally this happened I I was in a party and then the late president Ali Abdullah Saleh was killed and then I had to go to the toilet and blog about that and like even though I was like like 
surrounded with so many people, but I still got the news with all my, you know, the platforms that I like. And it's it was so important for me to write. And the only place that I was able to find it was just to go to the toilet and close the door. And so that tells you like how access to information has been uh, easy, accessible. Um, and 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 like even today, I can verify some of the information from Snapchat, actually, uh, because you can zoom in into the location and you have like as if you have your own uh, correspondence on the ground, filming, uh, you know, recording stuff for you. And but at the same time, governments have been really clever in, you know, in, in riding that that road and 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 arresting and detaining people um, um using these platforms and and suppressing their opinions and so it's been also like you know a space where government can also oppress uh, uh and people who who try to express themselves regardless if they are journalists or citizen journalists or just random uh people so so the the last thing I was reading was about how um, a, a satirist Saudi guy was arrested by by the authorities in Saudi Arabia after uh, they found out who's even though he was with a fake name, but they found out who was he through you know a guy that the Saudi government planted in, inside Twitter for some time. Oh, wow. So and then he leaked the information. So and of course we have another case of the United Arab Emirates sending something called like zero click uh, virus to your to your phone. You don't even have to click anything. And they arrested Ahmed Mansour, uh, one of the leading uh, human rights defenders in, in in the UAE. So so there are some examples of how governments can use. Uh, these platforms as, as, as a space where they can really tell you like, no, you shouldn't even use this, uh, this tool. You shouldn't even express your opinion. So um, it's, it's, it's scary. It's like, like, you know, I can, I can see in the West, a lot of people just using these platforms, put some song and, you know, pictures. Um, and, and that's fine. That's beautiful. Like enjoy the platform. But in, in most of the Middle East countries, like you, you think twice before posting something. I grew up in I grew up in Dubai, right? So um, I'm very aware that you have to really control what you put out there. And one thing that we were taught growing up was to be a journalist in the Middle East is perhaps one of the most dangerous jobs you can ever have. Um, and I kind of wanted to talk to you about your fears. Do you ever have those fears when, you know, traveling to the Middle East, you ever use things like a, a VPN? We were speaking to um, individuals who were from Sudan and, and they were speaking about, you know, having to use a VPN when looking at, when, you know, using social media for the Sudanese revolution that recently occurred. I think it's so important to say that it's, it's not uh, the career, the, the, the journalism field is the mm. most dangerous uh, in the Middle East. It's actually the states are the most oppressive. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm scared of it. And the reason I am a political refugee in Sweden is because of uh, I had to think twice of uh, how what, what I write could 
not only harm me, but harm my mother, my sister. Mm. Um, and um, when I travel now, now it's lockdown, definitely. That's the most oppressive thing <laughs> we're facing now <laughs> uh, with the lockdown. Uh, but before that, I, I tried to live for six months and, and before joining Human Rights Watch uh, in, in Cairo. Um, I was uh, just tired of Europe and I, I had to go to my Arab roots. And, and then as a replacement, I thought like Egypt could be uh, a nice place. And, and I stayed there for six months, but it was so like every day you can get the news of someone who was arrested from your circle or like a circle of like, you know, friends of your friends. And it was a matter of like, when is my turn? And I think that's what most of the Egyptian uh, journalists, bloggers, uh, political activists, that's the, the, like, that's your obsession every day. Like, am I going to be next? Mm. Who's next? Is it my turn? And, and I, yeah. And, and then I had to go back or, or leave. Um, like relatively speaking, uh, Tunisia and Lebanon, uh, when it comes to freedom of expression, have been the greatest, I think, uh, in the Middle East. Um, and it's really thanks to a history of public um, movement. Um, I, I mean, I'm not expert in, in Lebanon or, or Tunisia. I don't want to to give any wrong information, but at least that was my experience. Uh, it, it, absolutely, it's devastating what's happening in Lebanon now. And, and I would say a lot of Lebanese friends would tell me like things are changing because some, some of the, the Lebanese journalists are being arrested just because of posting on Facebook or, 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 or things like that. So it's, um, it's just so hard. The government... Uh, these states take legitimacy from silencing uh, the population. And it's so sad to see Western countries, Western states, and mainly uh, in Europe, um, still supporting uh, these states with even like the least like support of, of a diplomatic visit or a diplomatic um, meeting without mentioning these human rights violations uh, and abuses. And I think just a disgrace. Um, I'm also a Swedish citizen, and I think Sweden can do better and should do better in calling out uh, you know, these oppressive regimes. Uh, we had some period when the, uh, the Swedish foreign uh, minister, but she left uh, the post now, uh, Margaret Wallström, uh, who I, I had the pleasure to meet her. She was so against Saudi Arabia's oppression and, and, and violation uh, against uh, freedom of expression. And she was so up, outspoken that anytime she says something, it becomes breaking news. And we need more of that, I think. We need, like, these diplomats should use their freedom of expression in favor of, um, you know, arbitrary detainees, enforced disappeared people. Like, yeah. that's the least thing. You can, we're not even talking about, you know, stopping arms deals and 
and God knows, supporting uh, these oppressive regimes and building, I don't know, like I'm, I'm trying to imagine what worse could be, could be happening, like helping them build a factory of weapon or something. Um, but the least thing, just to speak out, diplomats should use their freedom of expression to support the oppressed. I mean, yeah, for like journalists in Saudi Arabia, often they've only been released because of pressure from the international like internet and people across the world pressuring them and organizations like Human Rights Watch. So if diplomats started calling them out and like imposing um, measures against countries for arbitrary detention, then it could make such a difference. But um, I think we're reaching towards the end of our time, but I think just a quick question because it kind of came up um is it like how do you deal with this cognitive dissonance of western countries um at one end supplying arms to a uh, continue wars that are happening in the middle east and on the other end, and like condemning the wars and condemning the human rights problems but also adding fuel to the fire so how do you navigate that as a journalist or as an activist I, I find it schizophrenic. How do you say that word? Schizophrenic. There you are. Because I, I, I think they have the double standards and they live um, sometimes, they have delusional attitudes. Um, because if you really believe in human rights values, it should be consistent with everything that you do. And and I'm not interested in, in you know, uh, Western states' PR work, uh, um, you know, polishing their image. And no, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, like, what is your responsibility in the human rights violations in the other side? How are you holding, you know, your, your agencies, your um, organizations, your... I don't know, like officials accountable. Uh, like, what wh- what are you doing to to not put your hand in any bloody situation? And it's it's like we, we get a lot of diplomatic sweet talk, and and very often I try to be you know uh, diplomatic as well. But at the end, I say like I'm I'm just tired. Like yeah, I mean, can you can you walk the walk and then just talk the talk? And and Yemen is a great example where you have like so many different countries involved um, in this so isolated, very often described and for, for forgotten war. But there are so many actors involved uh, in this forgotten, quote unquote, forgotten conflict. It's so frustrating to see Western states prioritizing their own profit over human rights values, human rights norms, international humanitarian law, the respect of human rights in general in Yemen. Um, I think Yemenis inside Yemen understand very well the hypocrisy and the moral um, bankruptcy of, for example, the US, the UK, uh, who are, you know, the, some of the leading um, actors in the conflict. Um, but at the same time, um, 
if you ask anyone in Yemen, they will tell you like um, the there is actually more deadly moral bankruptcy by the Yemeni actors themselves who allow the continuation of this devastating humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen. Um, because at the end of the day, the conflict in Yemen is Yemeni-Yemeni. It's between Yemeni actors. Um, and it's like for like an ordinary Yemeni, um, let's say if you speak to anyone in, 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 you know, in a market, in, in Sana'a or Adan, or if you ask them, like, wh- who's the most responsible of your tragedy? They will tell you our brothers. Um, so, so it's so important to to also when I I saw in your description and uh, in introduction in the beginning. Um, I think it's so like if you really want to show solidarity to people in Yemen, you have to speak about all the violators, all the abuses by all the parties, and it's not. And, 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 and I like I take responsibility as well as a researcher and someone who documents human rights abuses. I think of this all the time. Um, so there are no clean hands in the conflict in Yemen. The Yemeni government forces, the Houthi rebel group, the Saudi and UAE-led coalition, uh, their supporters, the UK, the US, France, you know, even Sweden is involved in the conflict in Yemen. And I think they all share responsibility of of what's happening. And uh, it's also like the, the solution should come from multi-levels, like reg- internationally, regionally, and locally. And we're still waiting for that to happen. One quick point before we sort of uh, wind up our discussion. You mentioned, you know, being a Swedish citizen as well. And one theme that I personally have been really passionate about has been passport privilege. And it's something that we discussed in our on our podcast last year, um, especially when talking about immigration and things like that. But also it has a big impact on journalism as well, because thinking about people who have different citizenships and nationalities, perhaps from more oppressive governments, what role do you think passport privilege has to play when it comes to being a journalist. So if you had an, a U.S. citizen per se, you could always seek help from the U.S. consulate or the U.S. embassy, and it's you know your your government that essentially can help you get out of trouble. But what if your citizenship is from an oppressive nation itself? What what role does that have to play? Yeah, that's you know we're ending the the podcast, but I feel like I can speak uh, for hours about that, but but. You're right. It's just so unfair. The inequality, um, and and the, like currently we see how our Syrian brothers and sisters in Denmark having a hard time with a decision asking them to go back to Damascus because quote unquote it's it has become safer, and and I was thinking like. Just give them the damn passport. Like, why they they did not become a citizen already? And I was thinking, what if I wasn't a citizen, a Swedish citizen by now? Like, definitely, I would have been kicked out. I mean, not definitely, but if I was in the same situation, uh, the same case that's happening in Denmark, and and that gives you 
yeah, there is so much injustices at these borders. Um, and I'm, I'm very aware of the privilege that I have today. And um, like, and to be honest, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm struggling with survival guilt um, because that's how it feels. And I do take therapy sessions um, because it's, it's mentally, it's not easy. And uh, even, like, especially that I still have a lot of, like most of my family are still in Yemen. And it's so hard to live with that privilege without feeling guilty. And, but as we speak today, there is like really ambitious, and I hope they succeed, ambitious uh, action by uh, the Committee to Protect Journalists uh, in the U.S. They're trying to put legislation that allows journalists to enter the U.S. in case they are uh, in danger. Um, and, and that becomes like by law, um, you know, uh, happening. And I think we need more of that um, just to guarantee like the minimum, like even journalists can at least get that kind of protection. Um, what's happening at borders, like the, the concept of borders, um, you know, not to mention the droning of, you know, refugees uh, at the sea in Libya, Italy. It's just so heartbreaking. And what you've said is relevant everywhere and like, for me, it just reminded me of India right now during COVID. Um, journalists are at the front line because, but they were never prioritized for vaccination, so they're they're like they're dying because they're doing their job and not getting any protection. So it's just so relevant everywhere, domestically, internationally. I just want to say that my fullest solidarity with people in India is just I I can't watch the news without like crying, uh, honestly. Uh, I think it's it's just shocking the level of of death the, the the weight of death, and I'm just praying praying for for India. Afra, this was a wonderful discussion. You raised some very very um, important points, and I think you're an inspiring figure to many many of the individuals who'd be listening to this podcast. Before we wind up our discussion, I'd like to ask you: Is there one? sort of main overarching message you'd like our listeners to get out of the talk we'd had, we'd had today? Um, yes, I, like, I'm obsessed with this idea. And, and I, like, thank you for giving me the opportunity, really. Uh, I listen to podcasts a lot, so I was, like, really excited. But I'm, like, I'm really, I always think of this, and, and it's not really about me, but, like, as a as a as a as a as a principle, if you really want to show solidarity for any Yemeni, just amplify their voices. It's not it's not about you. It's not about hijacking their their struggle. Just just amplify uh, Yemeni voices. Um, and and again, it's not like it's not selfish thing of me to say. It's not really about me. Alhamdulillah, I've done, like, I've reached a level, like, I've never imagined to reach. But it's really about the others. Um, amplify them, retweet them, you know, reshare their post, um, refer to their work. Um, the, such platforms uh, are important for their voices to be included in. Um, yeah, just, just, like... Talk with Yemenis, not just about Yemenis.
Thank you so much, Afra. It was an absolute pleasure. To all our listeners, you heard it here. Amplify their voices. Amplify the voices of Yemeni people. You know, it's not about you. It's about the message. Um, thank you and a big thank you to Akshita as well for joining us today from the Center of Governance and Human Rights. And my name is Mana Gassim. A big shout out to our team behind the scenes who make all of this work. And a big shout out to our sound editor, Max Parnell, as well. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and on our website, www.declarationspod.com, where we'll have the show notes and resources from this website. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening.